0: Welcome to International Law Talk of Wolters Kluwer International Group. During a series of podcasts, we'll bring you insightful analysis, commentary, and discussion from thought leaders and experts on current topics in the field of international arbitration, IP law, international tax law, competition law, and other international legal fields. My name is Maria Fanu, and I'm an assistant editor of the Kluwer Arbitration blog. For today's podcast, we invited Professor Joshua Carton, Associate Professor and Associate Dean at Queen's University. Joshua Carton, a warm welcome to this interview. Thank you very much for accepting our invitation. First of all, we would like to learn a bit more about you. Could you please tell our listeners about your early years in law and your path towards becoming an international arbitration lawyer and scholar?
1: Hi, Maria. It's great to speak with you and thank you for inviting me uh, to this new podcast. Uh, I grew up in, in Vancouver, Canada, uh, a very multicultural city. I, I think I grew up wanting to see the world. And when I was younger, I, I dreamed of becoming a foreign service officer. So I, I actually came to law in a way from diplomacy. Uh, I studied international relations as an undergraduate. I had a, a couple of internships at, at Canadian offices in the Far East in the embassy in beijing and then after i graduated at the canadian trade office in taipei and those were those were really formative experiences for me so when i went to law school i planned to poke focus on public international law and to become a foreign service lawyer but as a student at Columbia, i i kind of became disillusioned with public international law and i also had a particularly charismatic contracts professor the great scholar alan farnsworth who awakened my interest in contracts and in business law. In my second year, uh, I tried out for the Vis Moot team. It was the first time I'd ever even heard of international arbitration. So like I think a lot of international arbitration lawyers in my generation or younger, I came to arbitration from the Vis Moot. Uh, What I love about it is that more than any other field of law that I've encountered, it combines a highly technical discipline With a free-flowing practice that has a lot in common with diplomacy. There's the the flexibility and the variety of the law, the participation of lawyers and arbitrators from so many different backgrounds. There's a lot of demands on an arbitrator or an arbitration lawyer, I think more than other kinds of dispute practice, but also so much room for creativity.
0: You hold several editorial positions. You're a co-founder of the Canadian Journal of Commercial Arbitration, and you're also the general editor of a new uh, online research service for practitioners, uh, the Clued Arbitration Practical Insights. So can you tell us perhaps a bit more about these initiatives and how, how, they ha- how you help uh, arbitration practitioners build their strategy through this work?
1: Yeah, I think these, these kinds of editorial activities, uh, you're exactly right. They're one of the ways I try to stay connected with practice. Uh, The Canadian Journal of Commercial Arbitration, Uh, it's a brand new journal. It's been a lot of work, but a real pleasure getting it off the ground. Uh, We just published our first issue in June. The second issue is in production now. Uh, I've had the chance to work with really three giants of the field in Canada who are our executive editors. Uh, That's Jerry Geekes, Barry Leon, and, and Janet Walker. And the senior editorial team is rounded out by Anthony Damesis, who's also an academic at the University of Ottawa, who has a significant foot in practice. The, the Practical Insights Project is a whole nother level of complexity and, and for me, of, of a chance to have impact. It's part of the Cluwer Arbitration Practice Plus set of resources, which I think are just an enormously helpful set of tools for practitioners. I'm one of three general editors, uh, along with Simon Greenberg and Fan Yang, who I think are names that will be familiar to a lot of people listening. It's kind of like a treatise or a handbook, but reimagined for the online environment and reconfigured as practical advice for arbitrators, arbitration lawyers, and even students. It's, it's arranged as a set of modules. Each is on an issue that arises in international arbitrations, a confidentiality, or, or third party funding. Um, the Kluwer editors and the three of us, as general editors, have recruited a, a huge range of module authors from around the world centuries of combined experience among them. Uh, they range from scholars who recently completed a, a PhD thesis or book on their topic to some of the biggest names in the field. And we've tried as hard as we could to get a diverse group of authors from common law and civil law backgrounds, younger and older, male and female, and, and so on. It's, it's been fun working with them because they have very different styles. Uh, and as editors, we want to preserve that. We want to keep their voices but we also have to put a shared stamp on the modules because they have to hang together as a coherent set. Our our mantra relentlessly throughout the project has been make it practical. Each part of each module, it has to be effective in showing parties how to do something, how to draft a key document, how to make a choice, how to argue a point. Uh, It's been an amazing opportunity to be a kind of teacher on a global scale But it's also been a learning opportunity for me. Every draft module I read, uh, I learn at least something new. This
0: summer, you published an article under uh, a very intriguing title, that is International Arbitration as Comparative Law in Action. You argue that comparative law is thriving at virtually every stage of an arbitration. Can you explain this to our listeners, perhaps with a few examples?
1: Well, comparative analysis, it's uh, its really an obsession of mine. Aside from international arbitration, my main kind of academic community is in comparative law. Um, it, and this article brings together uh, these two interests of mine. Uh, and I think in, in a way that really is just me observing something, not trying to, to kind of force uh, or develop a relationship. Because as I see it, comparative law methods are absolutely necessary and integral to every aspect of international arbitration law and practice. It it goes beyond merely a method of deriving or assessing rules, but comparativism, I think it really has become a core aspect of the professional culture of the field. So comparative law, it's, it's not just a set of techniques that are used in international arbitrations. It's really a constituent of the field. Now, any kind of transnational practice is going to involve comparison. Um, For example, selecting the governing law under a contract. But in international arbitration, it's really pervasive. Uh, The first dimension of comparison, of course, is, is whether to choose arbitration in the first place, especially as compared with litigation. To make that choice in an informed way, parties have to engage in a comparative law analysis that goes beyond black letter rules. that considers how litigation would operate in any state whose courts might have jurisdiction or that they might want to choose as a venue. They have to consider not just the content of the jurisdiction's laws, but things like whether the judiciary is neutral and independent, whether the procedures are fair to foreign litigants, how much litigation costs, how long the process takes. And given the huge impact of the choice that arbitration versus litigation can have, A lawyer who fails to make at least a quick and dirty comparison of the relative merits of litigation and arbitration for the particular deal, I think they're failing in their duty to their client. But what makes comparative law techniques so important to international arbitration practice are what in the paper I call the twin phenomena of too much law and too little law. This was an idea actually that I developed in in my teaching. For so many issues that arise in international arbitration, parties are presented with an enormous menu of legal options. The seat, uh, the rules, the governing law, the qualifications of arbitrators, jurisdictions where enforcement might be sought. At every stage, there's a radical availability of choice for the parties. I liken in the paper laws and jurisdictions to an a la carte menu, and parties can mix and match at will to construct an arbitration that works for them. But that's the too much law phenomenon, right? There are many choices and there are no defaults. It's not even a question of party autonomy, choices forced on the parties or if they decline to choose uh, often on the tribunal as a backup, unless counsel or arbitrators are really derelict in their duty. They're going to have to engage in a series of careful, informed comparative law analyses throughout the proceedings. But then at the same time, you also have a range of issues on which there's too little law, when there's no decisive, applicable rule of law that the parties and the tribunal must apply, and so they have to decide for themselves. uh, Will there be a hearing? If so, will there be witnesses? If so, will they be directly examined, live in the hearing? Will they be cross-examined? What categories of evidence will be admissible? Uh, How will expert evidence be introduced? How will the costs of the proceedings be allocated? Uh, What interest rate will be assessed on damages? On all of those matters, there is simply no rule, or else the rules give complete discretion to the parties or to the arbitrators to choose. So if the tribunal is going to avoid a kind of rank arbitrariness, it will have to identify some applicable rule. And in practice, this again means comparative analysis is unavoidable
0: and you have done a lot of work on diversity and this topic always remains on the spotlight. In fact, a couple of years ago, you published a very popular post on the Club of Arbitration blog under the title, Can I Get a Diverse Tribunal? So, inspired by our conversation, I will really borrow your question and ask you, can we get a, a diverse tribunal in 2020? What do you think? And perhaps to be a little bit more provocative. Why is diversity so important in the practice of arbitration? Is it just a value in say or does it relate anyhow to the quality of the outcome of an arbitration?
1: Uh, In 2020, I'd say you could perhaps get a more diverse tribunal than a few years ago, but there hasn't been a sea change. Um, I have a paper I've been working on that sadly has been sitting on the shelf for about a year uh, where I analogize diversity to a ladder. I, it's not a destination, it's a direction. And, and you know, maybe we've climbed up a couple of rungs on that ladder, but, but I would say that's it. Um, diversity is a complex topic. Uh, and I sometimes get frustrated by what can be a very one-dimensional nature to the discussions of diversity in international arbitration. For me, the question of what value diversity has, what it, what it means to have a diverse tribunal, It comes down to what we want diversity for now as i see a greater diversity in the profession not just among arbitrators but up and down the whole field i characterize it as having four distinct categories of benefits and different kinds of diversity serve those different benefits so the the first way to think of diversity as beneficial is that it's more fair to disputing parties Strangely, arbitrants are often left out of the debates on arbitrator diversity, which I find frustrating and also curious, since arbitration is—it's literally for the parties. Simply put, right, parties are entitled not only to appoint or to negotiate for an arbitrator who's sympathetic to their point of view, but they're entitled to define for themselves what that means. And I can illustrate that point by going back to the blog post you mentioned, which discussed a lawsuit uh, that arose out of an arbitration involving Sean Carter. Known by his stage name Jay Z, uh, and Iconics, which was a brand management agency that Carter had transferred IP relating to his uh, Rockefeller clothing brand. The contract contained a AAA arbitration clause, and Carter sought a court order declaring the arbitration agreement void on the basis that he was unable to find an African American arbitrator with the requisite expertise on the AAA's large and complex cases roster of arbitrators. And the argument was that this deprived him and other African-American arbitrants of a meaningful opportunity to have their claims heard by a tribunal that reflects their background and life experience. Uh, a New York court uh, declined to dismiss the claim, set it down for a hearing. Now, you could dismiss Carter's claim as silly. right? Why should it matter for an IP dispute whether arbitrators understand the role of clothing in hip-hop culture? You might dismiss it as a cynical tactic to derail the arbitration. As it happens, Carter withdrew his claim before the hearing because the case settled, so it was never really litigated. But a lack of understanding across cultural divides, it's a pervasive problem in our highly globalized field. Part of the response to that is the cosmopolitanism that I was talking about before. But it it can't be a complete response. And the reason is we should not be making those kinds of decisions for the parties. It's their decision for themselves. And a homogeneous pool of arbitrators it deprives the parties of the opportunity to set their own criteria for arbitrator qualifications right it deprives them of their full measure of party autonomy so to address that goal of diversity greater fairness to arbitrants we would need a pool of arbitrators that corresponds as much as reasonably possible to the diversity of the pool of disputing parties right every dimension of diversity is going to matter to that Demographic characteristics like race and gender and religion, professional background, national origin, native language, uh, and so on.
0: Well, thank you. Uh, Being mindful of the time, um, I have one final question that we will ask all our interviewees. And that is, what is, according to you, the biggest change in arbitration in the next five to ten years? So we need your crystal ball now.
1: Ah, well, I think there isn't one answer to that. There's a lot of answers. Um, my, my prediction is that we're going to see more of a kind of fragmentation of the international arbitration field as it grows and hopefully as it diversifies, as the arbitral institutions and law firms in developing states become increasingly assertive of their own perspectives we're going to see more specialization in the field. I think we'll see more arbitral institutions specialize in particular industries, more regionalization, more variety. Uh, As the center of gravity of the field moves East, we'll we'll likely see greater influence of practices uh, more prevalent outside the traditional kind of homelands of international arbitration in Western Europe, uh, especially uh, East Asian practices like, like MedArb, but not universally. Hmm. Because while the development of global standards has been a huge advance in arbitration practice, I think it might be close to reaching its logical limits or may have already reached them. There's a lot of value in preserving a range of options so that parties can tailor the process to their particular needs, to their industry context, to the specific character of their dispute. Arbitration law and practice evolves through a constant kind of churning iterative process of action and reaction. Uh, an institution tries out some innovative procedure. If it works, it's it's copied. If not, it fades back into obscurity. Different national practices are hybridized. And while the overall drive is toward harmonization, the end result is not going to be a single global order. Uh, instead, a div- diversity in the arbitration bar and more importantly, the, the market-driven logic of the field, in particular, the need to serve an enormously varied pool of commercial parties, I think that means that international arbitration is increasingly going to reflect the pluralism of its users.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Professor Carton. It was such a pleasure to have you in our podcast series.
1: It was a real pleasure for me too. Thank you, Maria, and, and thank you for the, the very thought-provoking questions. Thank you. Stay informed. Subscribe
0: to this podcast. Visit cluerlaw.com or follow us on social media.